Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Shana Kushner Gadarian, who is one of three authors, along with Sarah Wallace Goodman and Tom Papinski, of a very new book, Pandemic Politics The Deadly Toll of Partisanship in the Age of COVID. This book happened quite quickly during the pandemic, as academic books go, um, and was published by Princeton University Press in 2022. Um, but I'm going to let uh, Shana, tell us all about the project itself, how it came about, um, and what were the fascinating conclusions that they found, because they are indeed fascinating. Welcome to the New Books Podcast, Shana. Well, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, so my first question for you, um, representing all three authors, is how did the three of you come to this project, um, and and you know what what propelled you forward particularly during the pandemic, to write about the pandemic? Sure. Um, So Tom and Sarah had worked previously on several projects together. So Tom studies all the things, but political economy um, with a focus in um, Southeast Asia. And um, Sarah studies immigration and citizenship, mostly in Europe, I study American politics and political psychology. I had known both of them in February of 2020. They came to me and said, we're putting together um, a grant application for the National Science Foundation. Um, they, the NSF has a what they call a rapid grant for emerging issues. And so they had decided they were going to put in a grant application to study American attitudes about Um, the pandemic. And it was going to be a comparative study to begin with. The idea was to compare how Americans were responding to how um, people in Europe were responding. And so I said, okay, because I studied the US and I had written a previous book with Bethany Albertson on the role of um, anxiety in politics, including public health threats. And so together we had a variety of expertises around issues of crises, economic, you know, who we think of ourselves as citizens, immigration. 
Um, and we had, you know, together we put in a, a grant application to the NSF and um, we got a, a set of money in the f- um, from NSF and they said they would support the project um, for what ended up being two rounds of survey data, but they wanted to focus on the U.S. and not on the comparative part. And so that's kind of how the, the start of the project went. And then we got in the field very early um, in March of 2020. We did a survey with YouGov, a representative survey of 3,000 Americans. And just the findings were so interesting and fascinating that we basically just started writing grant applications. And we just kept writing grants until we essentially funded six waves of survey data where we followed the same Americans over the course of the first year of the pandemic. Now, of course, in February 2020, we didn't know there was going to be a year of data. We didn't know how long the pandemic would go on, but we did know that this was a crisis um, and we were well positioned to study how Americans were dealing with this kind of crisis on many, many different dimensions. And, and so you put together the grants, you got the initial funding, and obviously you continue to put together the grants for um, subsequent funding. Um, and, and what was in, in your sort of outlook, because the NSF had basically said, focus on the United States, um, what was the sort of general hypothesis that you were looking at in terms of understanding sort of crisis reaction? Right. I think what we came we came to thinking through um, expecting that people were going to be turning to leadership to tell them how to think about the crisis, how to react to it. Um, I think earliest on. Right. So I had written this book about how under conditions of threat, when people become anxious, they turn toward experts in the field. They adopt the kinds of policies that experts say will keep you safe in a variety of policy areas, including public health. I think one thing that we didn't anticipate going into the field, and be, but became very, very obvious as we went through the first wave of data, is that the experts um, in the COVID policy were saying different things than political leadership. And this provided a very different perspective on who people were going to trust with, you know, learning about what this disease was going to do in this very kind of conflicting and low information environment, people, instead of turning necessarily to the Surgeon General or turning to Dr. Fauci or their local health leaders, they were, they were listening to the political leaders um, who, again, on the right and the left were saying very, very different things. And that became very clear um, to us very early in the data collection that Republicans and Democrats were just hearing different things from their political leaders. They were seeing different things in terms of policy. And this had a real implication on both how serious they took the pandemic and what subsequent attitudes and behaviors they adopted um, based on their evaluation of how serious the threat was. And, and so, I mean, this is the sort of thread that, that obviously ties the whole book together. Um, and, and as you talk about this, the idea of how partisanship was a sort of foundational issue in terms of one's experience 
in COVID. Can you explain a little bit about how that that partisanship, this polarization that we sort of keep sort of talking about in American politics, how that sort of came forward in the data that you saw and and people's understanding of what they were doing? Sure. And I think, you know, one thing we can think through is partisanship operates on a a bunch of different levels in the book and in American politics. So first, partisanship is an individual level identity that people have that is now increasingly aligned with other identities that they think of as important in their lives, right? So, you know, uh, partisanship is not just which policies you like or which party you vote for, but it's also who you are and how you see the world. And so that I think is really important grounding to understand that not only is partisanship a kind of a set of policies, it's also, you know, how you filter information and who you trust to give you information about both, again, the seriousness of a crisis and what to do to mitigate those threats. So partisanship comes through as this individual level identity. It also operates on the level of, in our federal system, because of the way public health is um, operationalized in the U.S., and it happens mostly at the state level, partisanship also shapes the um, experience that people have in terms of policy. So the partisanship of the governors of the states that people live in, the county executives, matter for people because they're living in different policy spaces, right? Whether you have a mask mandate, whether or not you're shut down, whether or not businesses can open back up, the regulations in the state, all of those are really dependent on the partisanship of the leadership in um, in the state that people are living in. And finally, right, partisanship matters at the federal level because we have, um, again, at in the federal level, Congress is essentially disagreeing about how important COVID is as a policy. And we have a Republican president who is telling people not to be scared because he's building his reelection. And where the earliest COVID cases are, are not in states that are key to his reelection. And so again, like partisanship matters in all of these different ways. So when we go and we, we look at the survey data early on, we find that, and, and we published a, a paper on this like in, in quite early on in like April or May of 2020. Again, it's kind of all a blur, but um, the first wave of our survey data came back. And, um, you know, what is the biggest determinant of people's health behavior? So we asked on the survey, you know, what are you doing to keep yourself safe? And we just gave them a whole list of things like washing your hands. Are you going to the doctor? Are you looking for for more information about COVID? And the kind of the thing that matters more consistently than any other thing, than where you live, than the number of COVID cases in your area, than your gender, than your income, is your partisanship, right? Partisanship just swamps everything else. And it's the most consistent predictor in the statistical models of anything um, in in terms of how people are reacting in terms of their health behaviors, how worried they are about the crisis, and then what kinds of policies people want to, again, keep themselves safe. So that's a long answer to the question about partisanship, but that's kind of 
you know, and, and so then we talk about it, people are picking up lots of different signals, right? They're not just coming to like, it's not the case that like Republicans are less likely to wash their hands all the time, right? So like we can discount the fact that like in previous crises, we don't see these differences in terms of partisanship um, on things like health behaviors. So it's not the case that Republicans and Democrats look different all the time on their health behaviors. There's something very special going on um, during COVID that we, you know, we kind of trace out in the book. And this sort of uniqueness about behavior and attitudes, um, and you compare it with, you know, our understanding of what people might be doing in relation to the flu or what people might be doing in relation to sort of long-standing health advice around vaccines, that what happened in COVID was that got scrambled. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. I mean, if you, again, we have some evidence from um, political scientists during the Obama years that there was an, certainly attitudes about healthcare and healthcare access became more partisan during the Obama years, partially about the kind of fight over the Affordable Care Act. But healthcare access and healthcare, you know, whether you think we should have, you know, a national healthcare system, it's different than actual, like whether or not you're going to get a flu shot. And we have much less evidence that, you know, things like cancer screenings or flu shots or any of those kind of preventive behaviors are more likely to be done by Democrats and Republicans regularly. And and your mention of the anti-vaccine movement, what we know about kind of the anti-vaccine movement is that there is a part of that on the kind of right of the political spectrum, but a lot of that anti-vaccine movement is coming from people on the left. And so that would, that would, um, we would then expect, right, that we would see more pushback from people on the left over things like vaccines. And that's not what we see. We see, and and we, we continue to see that there is a vaccine gap on COVID vaccines um, across partisanship. And so I, I wanted to ask you about these six waves of, of survey, um, which also sort of really structure a lot of what you discuss throughout the book in terms of being able to reach back out to the same folks. Although in the last wave, you were able to add in some more diverse voices. Um, so I wanted to ask about you know, what did it, what it was that you were trying to find out from people in terms of their response to COVID, um, not just uh, did you wash your hands and so forth, but also, you know, sort of these questions about fear and anxiety and hope, um, which came forward in different ways with different partisan groups. Sure, that's great. So, you know, one of the things early on when we started talking about this project and we would present it at different places is the spatial heterogeneity of where COVID comes really could explain why we're seeing differences in wave one and two. And so here, what I mean by that is the fact that COVID starts in New York and in Washington and California in states that are more likely to have Democratic governors and they have um, Democratic, you know, voters as well might suggest that people, that Democrats who are kind of washing their hands more and going to the doctor and and doing all those things are 
being reactive to the risks that they're seeing in their areas and that Republicans in places where there are less likely to be COVID cases in rural places in the middle of the country um, at this time during wave one in March of 2020, that really people are just uh, taking in the risks that are around them. And it's not what we're not picking up is partisanship. What we're really picking up is just that the, the places that people live in are different. Now, we we account for this in a variety of ways in the statistical models, right? We do, we, we compare people in the same zip codes to each other, but you can't get away from like that places are different as well, right? And so one of the things we wanted to do by following the same people over time is one, you can account for the ways that COVID itself changes over time, right? Which is that eventually it does come everywhere and everyone is at risk, even though the kind of obviously the levels of risk vary by how many cases you have in the area. Um, But we also have the ability by following the same people over time, we can see whether or not, you know, some people are just more scared than others, right? Like we know that there is some literature about trait anxiety. And is it the case maybe that just, again, like Democrats are more scared than Republicans? And if that were the case, then, um, you know, you have new people all the time and it would always look like Democrats are like more scared. And so we uh, have the ability to to kind of account for people's um, individual differences by following them over time. So that's part of what we did. So again, I, you know, I'm a kind of emotion scholar. And so one of the things we built into the survey is asking people their emotional reactions, because we know from this literature on emotion and politics that part of the way that people decide to engage on an issue is if they are threatened or scared or emotionally engaged, right? So you emotions are motivational for people. They motivate you to take in new information. They motivate you to potentially change your attitudes Um, to, again, protect yourselves or blame others. So what we find over time is that Democrats start off more worried, more angry, like they are just, their their negative emotions are much higher than their their Republican colleagues, right? Even in the same places. Um, And they stay that way over time. And again, we're following these same people over time. And we, we, so that accounts for the fact that like, if Democrats are just more scared over time, maybe they, um, you know, maybe it's about what's on the ground and we can account for the fact that, you know, personality differences and whatnot. Um, and, but this changes. And so one of the benefits that we have from this sixth wave is that is post 2020 election. And so it allows us to say something about what the change in leadership at the presidential and congressional level means for people. And lo and behold, in like in March of 2021, our Democrats are still, they're still worried, but less so than they had been over time. And all of a sudden, Republicans report that they are more worried and Democrats are more hopeful, whereas Republicans had been pretty hopeful over time. Right. So, again, what we're picking up here is not just that people are reacting to COVID cases, but they're reacting to who to leadership changes and whether or not they believe that the Biden administration can um, produce policies that are either going to keep them um, safer in some you know, fundamental ways 
or whether or not, you know, if you're a Republican seeing this change in leadership, you may think ultimately we're going to be not as safe or, you know, I'm going, my, my freedoms are going to be more restricted than they were under the Trump administration if I have to, you know, wear a mask more or I have to get a vaccine to go to work, right? So there's, there's like this, um, that sixth wave provides this very interesting change in, you know, these emotions are picking up short-term reactions to what's going on on the ground, but also these longer-term reactions to um, what leadership people trust to keep them safe. So what you found in terms of the leadership switch um, among partisans is very similar to what we often find in other poll data on is the country going in the right direction or the wrong direction after a presidential change um, that immediately switches people's, you know, thinking on how strong the economy is or things to that effect. Yeah. I mean, people definitely put their partisan glasses on in thinking about like, you know, right after an election, all of a sudden, like if your person's in charge, you're like, yes, everything is great or it will be great. And if your person is not in charge, right, all of a sudden everything feels much, much worse. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't love the kind of, um, you know, is it emotion or, or rationality because those things are really intertwined. But it is clear that, um, you know, a lot of the work on emotion, including my own work, argues that when people feel emotion, that means that they are less likely to rely on standing decisions like partisanship in forming attitudes, right? Like anxiety makes you pay attention to what's going on around you. But what is very much clearer in, in this um, instance is how powerful partisanship is as a filter on new information and even how much you will express your emotion. So the partisanship comes first and then the emotion comes after that. And and I, I kind of wanted to ask a, a bit about that because you also set up the book in a certain, in a very interesting way by sort of designating the United States as a patient um, <laughs> that has underlying um, conditions and that the, that the, the sort of unexpected underlying condition is partisanship. Yeah. I mean, I think part of what we do in that that first chapter and kind of talking about like pre-existing conditions of the U.S. is to say um, lots of other places in the world. Right. So, again, you know, when I'm writing with comparativists, we want to think about like what is the U.S. a case of and lots of other places in the world have some set of conditions that would make the pandemic difficult, right? And we're we're seeing that like very few countries handle the pandemic particularly well. But what what we argue is the unique case of the U.S. is that we don't have just one of these pre-existing conditions. We have all of them and, you know, and particularly bad political leadership. So we talk about Um, you know, what are the things that the structural issues that would have made the pandemic hard, right? So we have, you know, a deeply unequal healthcare system that is pretty fragile. We have inequality on income and race that we see, you know, play out in who gets sick and who can't take time off of work. We have a federal system, as we talked about before, that means that people are experiencing 
the same pandemic in very different ways based on the political leadership in their states um, and the capacity of that of that federal system. And we have this bureaucracy at the federal level that has been hollowed out by attrition during the Trump administration and and previous years, but particularly the Trump administration. So it doesn't have as much capacity to do things like, um, you know, get masks um, made and create tests and do all the things that we needed to do pretty quickly. And on top of that, we are also a kind of deeply polarized on partisan grounds, but that itself isn't unique, right? Like we have lots of other examples of polarized places, but fewer examples of places where the political leadership, again, align health behaviors with the identity of of the party, right? So like we have, you know, the UK is an, is an example of a place that's deeply polarized and has, you know, a lot of the same difficulties, right? They have a a national healthcare system. So that makes a lot of things a lot easier. Boris Johnson doesn't go on television and tell people like, don't worry about COVID, right? Like we know some things about what Boris Johnson was doing, but, but he was telling people to get vaccinated. Um, We have lots of other polarized places and, and we have lots of other federal places where a lot of the handling was was better. But what we argue is that the combination of all of those things and polarization and political leadership um, from the Trump administration that aligns this identity with a party with health behaviors um, really is a toxic combination that made the pandemic much worse than it had to be. And, and so a question that I've had as I was reading your book and thinking thinking back to the, the experience during the pandemic here in Wisconsin and, and elsewhere um, was how, how much was it that people were fundamentally confused? I myself was confused. You know, we, we think back on the fact that we used to wipe down all of the canned goods that we got from the store, right? Before we brought them in the house. And there was, you make reference to like, should we wipe the mail off? And, and nobody knew what to do. Um, And then you have these sort of competing narratives about this is threatening. This isn't really threatening. How much does the confusion that many people sort of faced, perhaps lead them towards, I'm just going to listen to the person who I like. Yeah, no, I think that's fundamental, right? I think the the fact that we have confusion, that information is both scarce and competing and, um, and changing all the time, right? If you think about your kind of average American voter, you know, as I tell my students, most people pay little attention to politics most of the time. But all of a sudden, they had to pay attention to politics because it was everywhere and it was all consuming. And how do they know who to talk to and think, you know, and listen to? Um, and it and it was, um, you know, normally it would be the people who, again, have the expertise in the area, but even the people who had expertise didn't always seem like they knew what they were talking about. Um, and there were so many of them, right? Like your county commissioner and, you know, your state health leader. And then there's Dr. Fauci. And then and then the president is saying, like, don't do any of these things. Like, maybe you should drink bleach instead, right? Like, I mean, so 
there's a lot of confusion um, and there's a lot of actors and the, the actor with the biggest megaphone in the country is saying something fundamentally different than the Democratic Party and, and health leaders. And so we've set up, you know, what was already a confusing information environment, we've now set it up in a way where people are going to then be able to pick and choose who they, they trust and who they, they listen to. And, and so, you know, hopefully we'll never have to go through a, a pandemic like this again. Um, but, you know, part of what you all talk about at the beginning of the book, and then you sort of talk about it also at the end is what do we learn and how do we solve this problem in the future? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think what we, I think one of the lessons um, is in some ways how easy it is and how fragile we are as a society if if we can make something as fundamental as keeping yourself safe from a disease line up with partisanship. And so I think we want to think through as political scientists, as public health scholars, you know, what are the kinds of messages that peop- we want to be able to send to people that align with their values, that are easy to understand, that are easy to implement, um, that can help people understand um, health challenges in the future, right? Like if you believe the climate scientists, right, the the climate change is likely to make pandemics worse and more frequent. And so like, you know, we wanna think through what like the next thing looks like and if, it's about um, partisanship. I, I'm still not sure that we've learned the lesson about how to delink partisanship from identity. I do think some of this is uniquely, uniquely linked to tr- Trump as president. I cannot, uh, right? Like I've tried to imagine Jeb Bush or Mitt Romney um, as president, right? I don't think this is really about Republicans versus Democrats, right? I do think there are some differences in terms of Republicans generally value individualism and freedom more um, in terms of what they say they care about than Democrats. And so I do think some of these policies were going to be a harder sell for Republicans, you know, shutdowns, lockdowns. um, But some of it, just all gets wrapped up together. Vaccines didn't have to be a fight. Um, maybe mandates would have been more difficult for Republicans. But I do think some of this is very unique about Trump. But I do think the kind of structural issues about how we message on policy, um, public health policy and how we regulate on it um, are, are lessons we can go forward, right? Because a lot of the changes that we would need to make ourselves safer for the next pandemic are structural changes like air quality um, and, you know, thinking about what are the kinds of uh, milestones that you would need in order to implement a mask mandate in public transit, Um, I think those are structural issues. That's less about individual behavior because what we find, you know, as with lots of other things in politics is people are ultimately likely to follow rules. And so when there are rules, you're less likely to have this partisan split. Um, You know, that doesn't mean it's 
completely absent. But like if you go into Target or Wegmans or Meyer or wherever you're shopping and there's a mask mandate during the height of the pandemic, it's really hard to pick out, you know, who, what's who's partisan and who isn't because every almost everyone is following the rules. But when you make it up to individual choice and it, you know, mass or an identity marker, then um, that partisanship comes in. So I think some of what we've learned is that, you know, health communication has to be better. Some of these regulations and structural things would have to change prior to the next pandemic. Um, And, uh, you know, what I make, which is always kind of a self-serving comment, which is that, like, social scientists should be in these discussions about public health because, you know, we're seeing this partisanship early on and often, and we, I think, know how to think through it. Even if we can't solve it, we at least can say, like, listen, you should take into account partisanship in your models rather than think, like, that all of these messages are going to work for people uh, regardless of of their political identities. And and so I, I guess I also wanted to ask a little bit about um, how people reacted differently as the pandemic went on. And you talk about this in the book, obviously, with the different waves of surveys, but also we saw this all over the place, right, in terms of, you know, media focusing on um, people who were um, protesting against mask mandates, who were very concerned that the vaccine was going to install some sort of chip into us, um, and, and so forth as, as, you know, sort of in opposition to the public health advocacy and messaging from health officials and, and some, some segment of politicians. Um, so I was wondering in terms of that, that sort of component, that ideological component of, you know, sort of, public health coming into conflict with my rights as a citizen or individual in this country. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of the research that you did? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's it's kind of all wrapped up in in thinking through, you know, health behaviors are also, you know, that those individual level health behaviors are somewhat private, but there are also other kinds of participatory um, actions that people could take to um, talk about their mostly dislike of, of mandates, right? And you, we see this, we, um, we ask some questions about people's um, uh, views about mandates and, and protest about that. Um, and, and those are, as you, as you said, you know, with many things in politics aligned with ideology, right? So for folks who are more conservative and and don't like government regulation uh, on lots of areas of social life, like this is this feels very, you know, mandates on vaccines and shutting down businesses and those kinds of things are anathema to that view of the world anyway. Um, and and so we do see. Um, the protests against vaccine mandates and, um, are, are mostly on the right. You know, again, we, there is this part of the anti-vaccine movement that is on the left. Matt Mata at BU has some great new work on um, the, that much of the kind of anti-vaccine mandate um, I, protests and um, attitudes now 
at least in COVID, were, were more migrating to the right, which again is very similar to what we see. Um, I think I'll just, I'll just add one more thing, which is I think it's worth remembering, right, because so much was happening in summer of 2020, that some of the other protests that are happening that we ask about are the kind of racial justice protests that are happening after the murder of George Floyd. And so there's so much that's happening in, in summer of 2020 when we're in the, the field. Um, and so, you know, there are other people in the, the survey who are participating in protests during this same time, but they're participating in kind of racial justice protests. And so we do have this kind of participation at very high levels in both protest activity. And then, you know, we ask about the elections and election activity, um, in the data. Um, and you know, it's, it's all wrapped up in the pandemic, but the kind of the things that people are asking for are quite different in these different kinds of protests. And, and so I wanted to ask you, uh, as we're sort of getting towards the end of this interview, a little bit about how you and your co-authors are moving forward with any research related to this. Are you doing some more waves of survey? Are you done with this project completely and washing <laughs> your hands of it? <laughs> no, we're not. Um, so we have um, three papers right now, two of which are under review. One is that's about to go out the door on different parts of this, uh, different parts of the project. So we have one looking at um, the whole six ways of data and thinking about like what we've learned from this overtime work. Um, we have one on the role of gender in the pandemic and how, um, you know, what the, the experience of the pandemic was very gendered, right. In terms of, you know, women were much more likely to lose their jobs than men. They took over childcare. Many of women are not back in the workforce full time because of, Childcare issues and daycares shutting down as a function of the pandemic. But even despite that very gendered experience, um, what we find is over the course of the pandemic, a lot of what looks like differences in terms of gender are really subsumed by partisanship, right? It's just like another way to show the work that partisanship is doing because Democratic women and Republican women look more different than Democratic women do from Democratic men in terms of their policy attitudes, their health behaviors, et cetera. Um, and then we have a, another paper on um, attitudes about immigration and um, border closures um, that is currently under review. And, and I have um, money from the Carnegie Corporation, and part of what um, we're going to be doing with that is... Um, I have a graduate student who's been working on um, the role of emotion in COVID and thinking about um, emotion and uh, polio, um, attitudes about polio and message taking. And then um, I think we'll have probably do one more wave of, um, of the survey to just see, because um, in March of 2021, when we were in the field, uh, it was very early on in vaccination. And so we don't have a lot of great data on our, you know, what has happened to our respondents. Um, did they get vaccinated? You know, did they get boosted? How many times have they had COVID? Um, and how they're thinking about the Biden administration's handling, right? So we don't know any of that because of when we were in the field. So the hope is to 
go one more time um, to, to see what they've been up to. And, and so my, my last sort of inside baseball question, um, is, you know, you and Tom and Sarah wrote a book that was published by an academic press exclusively during a pandemic. Um, and it came out really fast (laughs) as these things go for academics. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, it's kind of like, I think I said at the beginning, it's a little bit like a fever dream. So like the, all of this, what's happening, like in our bedrooms and in our basements, like while our kids were home, like between us, we have, um, you know, seven kids. And so like, um, so there was a lot of like late night writing, a lot of, you know, putting in, I mean, even the IRB application to put in the first wave of survey data was happening as all of our universities were shutting down. So everything what happened kind of like in a, a like a fever. Um, I think part of this accelerated pretty quickly once we got the first wave of survey data back and we wrote up that first paper that is in PLOS One. Um, we had a, an editor from Princeton University Press say, is this a book project? And I said, I don't know. Is this a book project? We we maybe. And so we kind of worked out between us, what would a book look like if we were going to write it? And then we pitched it to the editor and, um, and we, I just can't say anything but wonderful things about our editor, Bridget at Princeton University Press to kind of help us conceptualize the book, get it through the process. And she very early on was like, this book needs to get out pretty quickly. So here's the timeline that we're, we need it to be written on in order to get it out in October of 2022. And um, by the way, like we're, um, you know, there's supply chain issues. And so like here, you know, we probably need it a little faster than even you were, um, you were used to writing because you know, like everything takes longer now. Um, paper takes longer, ink takes longer, right? I learned some things about the publishing process, but um, but it was really, you know, we split up the chapters, but we've all written each, you know, and we wrote on our expertise, but we also edited each other's work. And we were, there was just a lot. <laughs> there was a lot at once. Um, but, you know, we, we worked out the kind of workflow um, as we went. And, um, you know, I can't, again, say anything but great things about my co-authors and about working with Princeton because it was a great experience. Well, I, I thank you for, for all of that. Um, and it's been great to talk to you about pandemic politics, from which I learned a lot and recalled things I didn't necessarily want to recall, but that's okay. So I've heard this from more than one person, and I'm sorry for everyone's PTSD reading that timeline chapter. But part of the reason we wrote it that way is because people don't remember that part because everything was happening all at once. Um, and so we, we wanted to set the stage. But yes, apologies for the PTSD about it. It's okay. Yeah, and it's, and it's a it's a really accessible book. So I, I wholly recommend it to anybody who wants to relive some of that or not. Um, and so I'd like to say, to thank um, Shana Kushner-Gradarian, Sarah Wallace-Goodman, and Tom Papinski, um, who you were speaking on behalf of, um, for joining me today uh, to talk about pandemic politics, the deadly toll of partisanship in the age of COVID, published very quickly um, in 2022 by Princeton University Press. I assume Princeton University Press has this on their website. They do, indeed. Yes. Yes. And any brick-and-mortar store you want to give a shout-out to that's carrying the book? 
Um, or not. You know, I'm not sure. But you, your online retailers and uh, Princeton University Press would have it. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining yeah. me today, Shana. Yeah, thank you so much.